I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2014. Enjoy. I have a feeling that many of you listening to the morning show right now are fans of uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and other writings by the great J.R. Tolkien. I have a feeling, though, that uh, even if you are a, a fan of his works, you may not know actually all that much about Mr. Tolkien himself and uh, the story of how he became who he was and how he came to write such uh, enduring classics that are so beloved here and around the world. Uh, many questions about Tolkien uh, can be answered in a beautifully crafted biography of his just published called Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and became the most beloved author of the century. Uh, the book is written by Devin Brown, uh, who is a Lilly Scholar and professor of English at Asbury University, where he teaches courses uh, devoted specifically to J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Um, he is also the author of Hobbit Lessons and the Christian World of the Hobbit, which are published by the same publisher, uh, Abington Press. He has spoken extensively on both J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis uh, at uh, special conferences uh, here and abroad. And uh, uh, he has done a beautiful job of uh, helping us understand who uh, Tolkien was. Uh, again, this book is titled Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author of the Century. Professor Devin Brown, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. I am very, very excited to talk with you. And one thing I want to make sure I say right off the bat, and it might be seem like a curious place to begin, but one of the things I really appreciated is the fact is that there is so much in this biography, and yet it's a very modestly sized biography. Uh, and for someone who has a lot to read like I do, uh, I appreciated the fact that I wasn't trying to make my way through a, a 400 or 500 page biography of Mr. Tolkien. I wonder if you could just say a word about uh, the modest size of this yeah. biography and also um, what kind of challenge that may be uh, uh, presented to you in, in terms of telling the story as thoroughly as you do. Uh, but with, within the confines of a, of a book that uh, uh, is uh, scarcely 150 pages long. Yeah. Anyone who sets out to write a new biography of a famous figure um, needs to either do one of two things. Either needs to have, you know, come across some hidden letters up in a dusty attic somewhere that shed new light on this person. You know, that, that Tolkien's books were really written by his son or Queen Elizabeth or something crazy. Or they need to take a different slant, because there's already some very good biographies out there. Most people who know Tolkien will know of the Humphrey Carpenter biography, the one written by uh, a, a very good Tolkien scholar, a very good writer, when, when, when Tolkien was alive, uh, with his cooperation. So if you're going to do something like this, you've got to take a different slant. And like my kind of mouthful of a subtitle suggests, my, my book tells how an obscure Oxford professor wrote The Hobbit and then became the most beloved author of the century. That's what I focus on, is telling that story. Now, 
there is such a thing as a comprehensive biography where you learn what his great-great-grandfather did when he was born and things like that. Mine's not that book. Mine does tell this story, and, I, and I'll just say this. I think it's a story that's as interesting and as fascinating as any of the stories that Tolkien would go on to write himself. I quite agree. And uh, I think one of the things that is intriguing is that in some ways it's a surprise. That is... Uh, for uh, J.R. Tolkien to go on to become this immensely beloved figure. Uh, I mean, he did not have brilliance written on every page of his early life. I mean, and if someone were to have seen him at the age of 7 or 11 or 17 or 21, even 27, I mean, they they very likely would, would never have predicted that he was destined for the greatness that he ultimately achieved. And on the other hand, some things that we read about him make it also seem like it wasn't a surprise at all. There are sort of these these hints of the greatness that is to come. And uh, I, I'm just so intrigued that, that the story of Tolkien is, is, in a sense, the story of, of both of those uh, aspects. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, we all know of these musical prodigies, you know, Mozart and Beethoven, who from the very start, it was clear to everybody what they were going to do, and it was just a question of how soon it didn't take very long. Like you mentioned, Tolkien had some flashes of brilliance as a young person. I mean, he had an incredible ability with language, and he had a deep, deep passion for the, the myths from the North, uh, Icelandic myths, uh, the Swedish myths, Norse myths, um, and, and he could read those in their original languages and was just really good at it. But yeah, he um, did not get a full scholarship to Oxford when he was a high school senior. He got a partial one because, well, he'd been messing around with his languages instead of studying for his exams. Uh, when he comes up to Oxford as a student, he uh, gets a second, and, and it's a weak second on his first set of, of exams, and almost lost his scholarship, almost got booted out, but his tutor said, look, here's the problem. Uh, you're studying the wrong stuff. He had come as a, a classical student, which meant Greek and Latin. And he says, you need to switch over to, to English, which really meant Old English and Middle English. That's, where, that's what you love. That's, that's where your passion is. And, and once that happened, things sort of clicked. Uh, having said that, that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, when he comes time to get married, he marries um, sort of his high school sweetheart. And she's an orphan, like he is at the time. And her guardian isn't too big on this, this wedding. So she'd been engaged to a farmer, and she, he thought maybe she should stick with the farmer. At least he had his farm. He wasn't sure that Tolkien would ever make anything out of himself, which you know, is one of the great understatements in literary history. Uh, and even Tolkien, uh, after he got his, his uh, academic career going, he got a professorship at Leeds University, and he was offered not one chair but a second chair at Oxford. Uh, it looked like he was just going to be this obscure Oxford professor. He's grading a stack of high school entrance exams, uh, the kind of thing here in America we might call uh, a stack of blue books is sitting right there on his desk one summer. And it's something an Oxford professor would do to make some extra money over the summer, kind of tedious, um, you know, the, the kind of thing if you had some extra money you wouldn't do. Anyway, he comes across um, a blank page in one of them, and he's thrilled because, what, <laughs> he doesn't have to read it, doesn't have to grade it, and... Uh, for reasons he says he could never later explain, he scribbles down in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And he had no more idea than we did, he says, of what a hobbit was or where they lived. But he liked names and liked finding about them. So he starts telling his kids a, a nighttime bedtime story uh, about this hobbit. And before long, he starts getting his details confused. And his boys keep telling him, you know, last night you said it was this dwarf who wore the blue cap or whatever. So he starts to write it down. 
And from that gradual, rather humble beginning, you know, we get the Hobbit today. Mm-hmm. I, I really love a, a story that you tell in the prologue, which also sort of underscores the the, the good fortune it is that, that this book even exists. At one point you say, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings may, without exaggeration, both be described as books that very nearly weren't. And uh, to help illustrate that, you tell us the uh, story of a 10-year-old boy who played a surprisingly significant role, actually, uh, in this first Tolkien work uh, being published. Uh, tell our listeners about this. Yeah, so uh, um, after Tolkien starts writing down this Hobbit story, just just a story for his kids, uh, there's a friend of his who, who gets the flu in Oxford, and, and to help her recover, you know, back then there's no internet, there's not even much radio or TV, he, he lends her this unfinished manuscript of the Hobbit. She kind of likes it. One of his students happens to be living with this woman. She borrows it and likes it. And this student's roommate... Um, ends up working for a London publisher, Allen and Unwin. And this never happens today. People, I'm, I'm sure, listening have all tried to get books published or have thought about it. Anyway, this publisher said, look, if you'll finish this book, we'd like to take a look at it. Nowadays, you, you send your book and beg that somebody would take a look at it. Well, um, Tolkien does finish up. He, I think at, at that one point, we'd gotten kind of where the second movie ends up, with, with, with smog uh, taken off and, and maybe being killed by Bard. Anyway, he finishes it up, and he sends it in, and Stanley Unwin, who's the publisher, always had his, his son, Rainer, who was 10 years old, uh, read books that children might read, and, and, you know, he was part of the review process, and, and if he liked it, uh, they published it, and if he liked it, well, they thought maybe they shouldn't, right? So anyway, he, he writes his little report, and I've got it here. It says, Bilbo Baggins was a hobbit who lived in a hobbit hole and never went for adventures. At last, Gandalf the wizard and his dwarves persuaded him to go. This book, with the help of maps, does not need any illustrations. It is good and should appeal to all children. Uh, Rainer gets a shilling, uh, a coin that uh, I think was worth maybe 12 pence. And with that recommendation, The Hobbit went on and got published. And we could say, I think without exaggeration, that for a brief moment, uh, the fate of Middle-earth was in the hands of this 10-year-old reviewer. (laughs) (laughs) And we all are thankful that he liked it as much as he did. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Professor Devin Brown, who is the author of a book called Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author of the Century. Actually, we should take a moment to just talk about kind of the other half of the prologue, the prologue uh, ahead of this charming story you just uh, recounted, uh, actually tries to put into proper perspective just how beloved these books like uh, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, in fact, are in the pantheon of great beloved classics. Uh, you cite some, some, some interesting statistics that, that really help put it in perspective. Yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, for your listeners who were, were around uh, at, the, at the turn of the century and the millennium, you know, there was this millennium craze, and, and half of the attention was turned to this millennium bug. Was everything going to stop working? Our microwaves, our, our, our Internet, you know, your telephone, and you need to stockpile water. And the other craze was, well, what was the best book of the century, best author of the century, best, I don't know, whatever of the millennium? We had all these lists coming on. And so, you know, people love lists, and book lovers love lists. And so all these bookstores, Waterston's over in, in England, uh, the BBC in England, Amazon here in the States, had, had readers 
you know, vote for the author of the century or best book of the millennium or whatever, one of those two things. And I guess to everyone's surprise, except for Tolkien fans, uh, in list after list, competition after competition, Tolkien gets named as the, as the favorite author. Uh, Lord of the Rings comes in at number one. Hobbit is not far behind. A uh, couple lists of top 20 lists. There's only two authors in the top 20. <laughs> Shakespeare is one. And uh, Tolkien's the other. He's got two books in the top 20. And it, it caused such an uproar that people at one point, you know, very serious highbrow academics, were sure that a couple of these had been rigged, that all these Tolkien fans had gotten together and stuffed the ballot box or gotten their sisters and brothers and uncles and aunts to vote. Anyway, so as the results came in for multiple competitions, and Tolkien wins again and again and again and again, it became clear that he was the truly, among everybody, not just academics, but among people in general, he was definitely the most beloved author of the century. And let's just say this, he's doing pretty good in the 21st century as well. <laughs> it's really true, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you asked me before we went on the air if, if I happen to be a, a, a Tolkien fan, and so let me turn the tables on you since uh, you're the guest after all. Uh, it, it's pretty clear, obviously, that that you care a lot about Mr. Tolkien and uh, what he represents and what he has written. Uh, at what point did you first encounter his work, and what about it uh, caught your attention and, and grabbed your heart so uh, so so forcefully? Yeah, when, when my students at Esbury know that I'm teaching a Tolkien class. They think that somehow I took classes in Tolkien in the undergrad and maybe did my dissertation. And in fact, you know, when I was going to school, there were no classes in Tolkien, and Truth be told, he wasn't nearly as well-known when I was younger as he is now. I mean, everybody knows about The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, perhaps because of the movies or other things. But I grew up on the south side of Chicago, kind of a blue-collar area, where, you know, books by British authors were a bit in short supply. Uh, my family, I was in middle school, and my family was, was going on a camping trip to, to northern Indiana, and I knew that I would be sitting uh, for two weeks at a cement picnic table in some Indiana state park while the rest of my family was out paddle boating or nature hiking or having the time of their lives. I, I'm the one family member who doesn't like camping. So I went to the local library, and uh, back then you could only check out five books. And let's be honest, if a middle school boy walked into a library today and asked if he could take six, you know, they'd have a parade. Boy, I want six books. You know? the, the blues would fall down from the ceiling. You know, anyway, I could only take five, so I wanted five big fat ones. And so I took five big fat books off the science fiction fantasy shelf. Uh, didn't care what, who'd written them or what they were. I just needed big ones. And I don't remember what the fifth one was, but uh, the four books that I ended up with were The Hobbit and then the three Lord of the Rings books. So, and, and you literally kind of chose them because of their girth? Because of their girth. They were the big, uh, and, and you know how library books had the big hardcover ones, and they had that plastic you know, shell outside to protect them. And uh, even then, the covers weren't that cool. They were kind of strange. But I didn't care. They were big, and I thought they'd see me through this terrible camping trip. Uh, so anyway, uh, my family's off doing something one afternoon, and I pop open the first book. And anybody who's read The Hobbit, not, not seen the movie, but read The Hobbit, knows that Tolkien takes this kind of odd authorial stance where he pretends like he's well, telling a real story, right? There's these creatures called hobbits, and they used to be more numerable. Nowadays, you hardly see them at all. And for about the first 20 minutes there, as a middle school boy at that cement picnic table, I actually thought they were real. And it was pretty magical. And after a while, I figured, okay, I, I, he's doing something here that a middle school boy didn't quite get. But I know they're not real. But for a while, yeah, I thought they were real. So that's, that's how it started. And uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll say this. I'm a big Tolkien fan, but there are levels and levels of Tolkien fans. So wh- when I go to, like, a Tolkien conference, there, there are Tolkien conferences where everyone's very prim and proper and reads their very formal papers like any other academic conferences. But there's a couple conferences where they begin with a procession where people dress up as various characters. And, you know, I don't dress up as, as, as a hobbit. You know, I'm not going to put on the big feet and the hairy toes, and uh, I'm not going to be an elf or a dwarf or Gandalf. Uh, about the furthest I'll go is I'll put on my academic gown and go as Tolkien. So. <laughs> there you go. There. That's a great story about what what pulled you to, to choose these books in the first place. In some ways, it's yet another example of of the unlikelihood of life. I mean, that and, and that sometimes very, very important decisions with far-reaching long-term consequences can turn on the smallest of matters, like how thick the book is on the shelf. Yeah, or, or uh, Bilbo Baggins putting his hand out in the Misty Mountains and coming across a golden ring there in the darkness. Very yeah, cool. I was just thinking that same connection. <laughs> so let's get into a few interesting details about uh, Mr. Tolkien and uh, and uh, the, the biography which we're talking about, uh, again, called Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author uh, of the Century. Um, he was born on the 3rd of January in uh, 1892, and uh, the name of where he was born is formidable. (laughs) I'll let you pronounce it. Well, I usually say Bloemfontein, and, uh, you know, his dad was one of these Brits who went in search of, of, of a better living. So the way to do that better and quicker was to go to one of the colonies. So he goes off to South Africa, which at that time uh, England was sort of a, in charge of, and became a bank manager in a way that he would have remained a clerk for the longest time. After he gets this bank manager job, he invites um, his, his fiancée, uh, Tolkien's mother, uh, over, and they get married in South Africa, and, and J.R. Tolkien is born uh, not in England, not in, in, in green and pleasant Oxford, but in dry, dusty uh, South Africa. And yeah, he's born in 1892, so yeah, there's not a lot of authors that are born in the 1800s that are still read today, and I mean, and I mean read by your average Joe, not read in some lit class, but read by all sorts of people. And so, yeah, we could say that his life and his work and his legacy and influence now spans, you know, three centuries. He's born in the 19th century. Hmm. Uh, he grows up there. He spends the first four years of his life there. And um, everyone points to this incident, even he mentions, he says, yes, yes, it is true. He got bit by a tarantula. And uh, his nurse, who was taking care of him, he goes running off through the weeds, and his nurse chases after him, grabs him, sucks out the poison. It's, it's, it's one of these tales from childhood that maybe everybody has of a brush with death. <laughs> now, that tale would be just an interesting tale, except anybody who knows his story knows that evil, wicked spiders figure really prominently in both of them, right? So Bilbo, we, we saw it in the first movie where he fights off these big spiders with sting, and he's got his ring, and they're trying to take all the, the dwarves and wrap them up and eat them. And then, of course, we meet Shelob in The Lord of the Rings, where, he and, where Frodo and Sam are trying to get through the, the mountains into Mordor, and they go through Shelob's lair, and, of course, she stings Frodo. So he said, now, I wasn't really drawn on this, but I don't know. Guy get, a boy gets bitten by a tarantula, two great villain spiders in both of his big books. I think there's a connection there. <laughs> there, just, there just has to be. Uh, so uh, one of the... Uh, sadder aspects of Tolkien's childhood is that he loses his father very, very early. In fact, I think so early that uh, 
essentially he has no memories of his father or That's no right. significant memories. His, his family goes, his, his mom, of course, wants to go back to England. She's not working there, and it's hot. And truth be told, uh, Tolkien is not doing so well with the heat. So they, there's, the dad's going to have a furlough. He's been putting it off, putting it off. You know how new bank managers must be. So, so the deal is she's going to take the two boys, and Tolkien has, has a younger brother, and they're going to sail back to England, and their dad's going to join them. And in fact, uh, he, he dies uh, before he can get back there, leaving his young widow and his two orphaned sons there back in England. So he loses his father pretty early, and uh, about age four, and about age 12, he loses his mother. And again, this would be just interesting details, but, you know, Tolkien has these huge appendices at the end of The Lord of the Rings, and, and, and we all know Frodo's parents are gone when we start The Lord of the Rings, but we don't know when they vanished. Um, he's come to live with his uncle, Bilbo, right? But it turns out Frodo loses his parents at age 12, the exact same age that Tolkien lost his mother and became an orphan. Uh, Tolkien becomes uh, taken under the guardianship of Father Francis, their local priest, very wise spiritual figure in his life. Well, Aragorn kind of has that same role. So Frodo becomes a, a mentee or a pupil of, of Bilbo and, and is raised by him. Aragorn loses his father, and, and he gets taken to Rivendell as a young boy where he's raised by Elrond. So, yeah, Tolkien certainly drew on elements from his own life. Um, and I'll just say this. that I don't like to do a lot of psychoanalyzing. I mean, Look, my people in English do this all the time, and I'm not a big fan of it, but it is strange to say that uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, the inventors of, of Narnia and Middle-earth, both lost their mother at a young age. Now, now, what losing your mother when you're a young child does exactly to the storytelling process isn't quite clear, but it does seem a bit strange. And, and it wouldn't seem so strange if we didn't also have to point to George MacDonald, who had lost his mother at a young age, and uh, J.K. Rowling, whose mother died uh, before she sort of as she was just getting started writing the Harry Potter book. So there's something connection. I don't know what to make of it, but it's there. Right. It's uh, and and I think you you say something uh, I think very perceptive and 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 you also don't say too much when you when you say when it came time to write his fiction, fatherless characters and foster fathers would appear in key roles, notable among them Frodo who is raised by uh, Bilbo who is uh, uh, and Aragorn, who is only two when his father dies and is subsequently raised by by uh, Elrond. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. say just ahead of that, Tolkien pointed out that despite the fact that, uh, sorry, uh, and with very little memory of his father, Tolkien was more influenced by his absence yeah. than anything that he had said or done. And it's so interesting to think about being influenced by an absence. Yeah, I mean, the lack of a father is a huge thing that's, that's going to stay with you and affect you forever, and, and it's something he knew deeply. Uh, and, you know, the more, the, more, the more we look at this, the, the, the more we find. So when we get to the writers of Rohan there in The Lord of the Rings, Arwen, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the two characters that don't have their fathers gone, um, we get to Gondor, Faramir, and uh, Boromir, their mother's dead. So, you know, I, I don't know anybody's got... Oh, yeah, yeah, and Arwen, uh, Liv Taylor, who plays her in the movie, her mother has been uh, attacked by orcs, and she's gone over the sea. It's, I, don't think, I think you have to look really hard to find anybody who's got two parents left. Hmm. Even Samwise Gamgee, he's got the old gaffer, and his mom is gone. So, you know, missing parents are all over those books, and it's something that, that, that stayed with Tolkien all his life. Right. Uh, as for his, his mother, 
with whom uh, he did enjoy a few years before she also sadly uh, dies while he is still quite young. But uh, she is an important figure for him, and 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 not only as just a, a loving, attentive mother, but also for some of the things that were of great interest to her. For instance, you tell us that Tolkien's mother was very interested in in botany, That's right. uh, and and this is a theme which plays out uh, pretty dramatically in what he would go on to write many years later. Yeah, I mean, if Tolkien were alive today, we'd call him a tree hugger, right? He's this guy who loved trees, and anybody who who loves Tolkien has seen a picture of him under his favorite pine tree there in the Oxford Botanical Garden, this big 300-year-old pine tree. And, you know, he loved trees, and we see that in the Ent figures, and and he's he's a big proponent of, of the natural world and saving what's green and good out there. Well, this is something he picked up from his mother, who knew quite a bit practical botany. I mean, she wasn't a botanist, she wasn't a scientist, but she really taught him a love for nature and a love for plants. Hmm. She was also pretty good in languages, and she, she taught him languages from an early age. Uh, she also passed on her Catholic faith to him. That was a big factor in, in his writing. So yeah, his mother really was quite an influence on his, I don't know, intellectual ability, uh, his spiritual side, probably his psychological side. So before she passed away, she, she really molded him. There's that famous saying, the child is the father of the man. And in some ways we see <laughs> a lot of the elements of Tolkien the man in Tolkien the child. By the way, you say that during this period, uh, this this four-year period that they live in, do we call it Serhole? Yeah, I okay. call it Serhole. Okay. Um, you say uh, both he and Hillary were taught at home by their mother. Yep. Uh, was that common uh, in that time and place uh, for for children to be, in a sense, homeschooled? Something that we think about a lot today or see a lot today, but I think most of us think of it as a fairly kind of newfangled <laughs> development. Yeah, we, we certainly do. Uh, we think of it as some, some new deal. But, but earlier, early childhood education, which we, we now kind of assign to Head Start or daycare or kindergarten, uh, was really taken on at home. And I don't mean just, you know, learn to color and finger paint. This was some serious reading and studying. And, and, and I think, at least in in Tolkien's case, the child's mind can do a lot more than people expect it to. So, yeah, they were schooled at home. Now, they hit a point, and I, it's, it's not that the here, – here kids are often homeschooled, and I get a lot of homeschoolers when I teach college here, who, who have been homeschooled, you know, all the way through high school or maybe up into high school. Well, at that, you know, there came a time where it was time for, for Tolkien to go to, 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 go to school. Uh, and so, so, you know, you get to age – seven or eight or nine, and then it's time to go to school. But up until then, yeah, this was done at home and, and done in a pretty serious way. Mm. You um, tell us that uh, when he was about seven years old, Tolkien sat down and did one of his first uh, serious writings, and he decided to... Uh, write about a dragon. And I love this little story, which he evidently uh, recounts in a letter he wrote to uh, the great poet W.H. Auden in 1955. And he says that uh, he doesn't remember very much about exactly what he wrote, uh, but he does remember something very specific that his mother said. Do you remember the story that I'm talking about? (laughs) He he started to write things, and and he wants to say... Once upon a time, there was a green, great dragon. And she says, no, no, honey, you actually have to say great green dragon. So 
on, on one hand, Tolkien's imagination is fired by this idea of a, a dragon, a great dragon, a green dragon. And then on the other side, he's intrigued, and, and he, even at this very young age, that, that adjectives that go in front of a noun actually have a certain order that we actually learn subconsciously, right? I mean, everyone would, would say that once upon a time there was a great green dragon, not a green great dragon. And so that, that idea of, well, how does languages work? What are the rules that abide them? You know, and, and there's something magical. How do we know that? And, and yet we all do know that. So, you know, later on, he went to, on to invent his own languages. You know, the elves actually have a couple languages. Uh, we hear the dwarves speak in their language. And, of course, there's the black language that's, that, the, that the, the, the ring has inscribed, you know, one ring to rule them all. Well, we find that in the book. And, of course, it's said in the movie, Ash, Naz, Gingatuk, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, Tolkien had this very deep passion and, of course, a great ability for language that, that began even way back then. A couple of very important things occur that we need to talk about, and one of them, you've already mentioned um, that uh, that his mother Mabel uh, was a, a a person for whom her religious faith uh, was very very important, and I think you've even already mentioned the fact that she was uh, that she was Catholic. I don't think we've yet mentioned the fact that she actually converted to Catholicism. Much to the, I was going to say chagrin. I don't think that's the sufficient term. No, the way you it describe is. it, it's, it's horror, uh, the horror of of her of her relatives and her and I think her maybe her husband's relatives even. I mean, she she makes all kinds of people unhappy with that decision to convert to Catholicism, and I suppose that's not a surprise given the the time and place that we're talking about. Uh, what do you think were kind of the ongoing ramifications of this, particularly uh, for, uh, for, uh, for, for, for Tolkien? I mean, in, in what kind of a difference did this make for him both then and in the years to come? It's interesting. In, in studying any figure, you also get to study the times they lived in, which I think is, is you know, half of the fun. And so to go back into Tolkien's boyhood, the early 1900s, late 1800s, um, Things were different than it. It was such a big deal what denomination you were. And maybe some of your listeners can identify if they're as old as you and I are. You know, back when we were boys, it was kind of a big difference. Do you want your children to, to date a Catholic or marry a Methodist or whatever you are or aren't, right? If you're Jewish, do they have to marry somebody else who's Jewish? I think it's wonderful that some of these animosities have subsided somewhat. But boy, in Tolkien's boyhood day, they were huge. And so the fact that his mother, who's now a young widow, uh, converts from Anglicanism to Catholicism, you know, was a shock and horror to all her relatives, who immediately responded in what I would call one of the most unchristian-like fashions, when basically disowned her. So now she has very little money to live on, uh, and and very little family support, just because she's a different denomination. They are. Um, Tolkien, of course, became a Catholic with her, remained a Catholic all of his life, and you know. It's hard to speculate exactly what that meant, but you have to feel like the persecution that his mother received and the animosity that she re- she received from her from her family, her relatives, probably made him more of a staunch Catholic, more of a serious Catholic than he might have been otherwise. In other words, if she was going to be persecuted for his fa- her faith, well, then he's this is something that he had to take quite seriously because she sacrificed quite a bit to pass it on to him. So he becomes a very serious Christian and. Just, just to follow the story out to its end, everyone today knows C.S. Lewis as a, quite a famous Christian writer. Uh, what they may not know is that Tolkien was instrumental in bringing him to his, 
to faith. When Lewis and Tolkien first met, uh, Lewis was a great atheist, and Tolkien was an uh, equally serious Christian. Uh, Lewis thought he'd be the one to influence Tolkien, and in fact, it was the other way around. Hmm. Uh, there is that moment uh, in 1904 when uh, Mabel Tolkien dies and uh, leaves uh, her, her sons essentially as orphans. And, of course, we've already touched upon uh, how this kind of loss uh, played a very deep role in, in kind of shaping the emotional life of, of Tolkien from that point on. Uh, tell us on a more practical level about uh, what happened in the wake of, 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 of Mabel's uh, sudden death. Yeah, so she's, you know, rightly concerned. Who's going to raise my kids, and how are they going to raise them? You know, if, if one of the relatives raise them, they're not going to be allowed to practice the Catholic faith. So she names the, the, their local parish priest, Father Francis, as their guardian. And he does work with the family to kind of keep them in touch with their relatives, but he's, he's in charge of them, and he's in charge of raising them and raising them Catholic. Um, a number of interesting things happen because of that, and I don't mean interesting bad. So uh, one thing is, is that they get put in a boarding house uh, because they've got to live somewhere and they can't live at the rectory, uh, Tolkien and his brother Hillary. And at this boarding house, there's another orphan, uh, Edith Bratt, who in fact uh, becomes Tolkien's wife later on. So, so he meets her. The other thing is that, you know, he's looking for companionship and friendship because family, normal family fellowship is, is, is limited. And so he has these friends at school, and they all sort of like the same stories, and gradually it evolves. They form this little club, uh, and clubs were bigger back then. That's, that's one of the things you find out when you study history. Everybody had all sorts of clubs and was a member of multiple clubs. Anyway, they formed the TCBS the Tea Club Barovian Society, because they made it meet at Barrow's store for tea. Well, this TCBS, this high school literary reading club, where they would share their love of, of, of myth and language, read stories aloud, read things they've written, really becomes a forerunner of the Inklings, the, the writing group that Lewis and Tolkien would form at Oxford, uh, that, that from which would come you know, all these great fantasy stories today. And I just love that picture of these boys gathering together for what, in a sense, has all the trappings of, of some kind of illicit gathering, except that instead of, you know, smoking behind the tool shed or sneaking into the basement and looking at, uh, you know, dirty magazines, <laughs> what they're doing is gathering in secret uh, to talk about writing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the lovely illicit element is they first met in the library and they, they would, they would had this crazy way of making tea on one of the radiators. And, of course, back then, you know, you didn't dare have any food in the library. Our library at Asbury now, man, we've got Starbucks coffee and we've got muffins. It's a great place to go and study. You know, and, and, and the world hasn't ended because, you know, you can drink coffee in the library. It's actually gotten a lot better. But, you know, so they, they would sneak in food. And, of course, that made it more fun. What do, you, what do you got today? What do you got? And they'd make tea in the back. And, but, yeah, but, but, and, and then while they were having their tea, uh, they would talk about these these great stories, and um, you know that 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 kind of passion for story. I mean, I, I usually tell my students all great writers, and of course, all my creative writing kids want to want to write the next great novel. They all begin as great readers, and I just tell you, a lot of students today want to skip over that first stage. Mm. Yeah, I want to be a great writer, but I don't want to read all this and this and this. Well, I don't think it works that way. Tolkien's a great example. I mean, he spent lots of lots of time reading. Uh, before he became a great writer. When he first started to write, <laughs> it wasn't very good. Hmm. 
I'm intrigued by the way you describe him as a student. Uh, and uh, for as uh, for as great a success as he was to achieve, and for the fact that he went on to become a professor, uh, he does not exactly have a sterling, spotless academic record as a student. Uh, and it's not because he wasn't intelligent, and it's not because he didn't care. Uh, I mean, the the reason for his kind of rocky uh, academic life. Uh, it's kind of a complicated picture as you describe it. I mean, it isn't It isn't because he was dumb. It's not because he was lazy. It's just because sometimes what he was most passionate about didn't line up with the work he had to do. Yes, it, it's weird. I mean, he read and studied all the time. He just didn't always read and study what he was going to be tested on. And so when he actually took the test, he wasn't as prepared as he might have been. Um, but you know, he was really great in other areas. When he came time to took, take these first round of tests, his honor mods, uh, he got a, a, a second class instead of a first pass. And he said, really, um, he probably would have gotten lower, except on one of his tests that, that tested his languages, he, he got a perfect score, which is like unheard of at that stage. And, and so, yeah, he was very spotty in, in that respect. Uh, he studied what he liked to study, and, and when he studied that, he was incredible. And when he got off it, Forget it, right? He was he was pretty mediocre. Um, we see this picture a little bit, by the way, in Bilbo Baggins, who you know from the very first scene of the Lord of the Rings, he's he's pictured there at Bag End, writing down his memoirs in that big red book. That he, at the end of the thing, he passes on to Frodo because he's finished the tale, at least his part of it, and Frodo's going to finish it up. Well, Bilbo's a dabbler. He likes to write a little bit of poetry. He'll he'll draw some pictures, but it takes him the longest time to finish his story there and back again, just the first story of The Hobbit. And in this, uh, we get, a, I think, an image of, of Tolkien himself, mm-hmm. who was who quite the dabbler. He, he would work on something, and at some point he'd say, well, gosh, we're here at Balin's tomb. What kind of runes should be on there? So he'd invent all these dwarf runes and, and, and ways of writing and language, and before you know it, you know, it's been weeks since, and the movie, the story hasn't moved forward. He spent time figuring out what language should be on it, who carved the language on this, who's, who's the guy's father who carved the language on it. So, yeah, he got distracted. Having said that, the fact that he finally finished and did it this way, there's a depth to Middle-earth that we don't find in most fantasies. Most fantasies are, are pretty lightweight compared to The Lord of the Rings and, and the, the deep, deep history that's behind The Hobbit. Fair enough. I think one of the most interesting examples of, of his sometimes distracted state, you know, it's, it's, it's not that he was distracted by uh, the latest issue of Sports Illustrated that just came in the mail or whatever the British counterpart would have been back then. But, yep. but I mean, he would be distracted by having just begun reading something in Finnish. That's right. And, and, uh, and, 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 a, and a complicated language like Finnish would absorb all of this time and energy that, uh, you know, had he been able to uh, devote that to the the more central academic matters at hand, he probably would have done so much better. But his far-reaching interests and uh, level of inquisitiveness just made that impossible for him. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, that's the kooky thing about this story, is that all these sidetracks that nearly did him in were the very sidetracks that made him so great at telling the story he finally did tell. Without that background and finish, without all this dabbling and you know he 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 loved to draw he loved to, to to make letters without all that sort of dabbling the lord of the rings wouldn't be nearly what it is or the hobbit so so the very thing that almost 
uh, cost him his scholarship and got him sent down, as they say over there, is the very thing that, that makes his fiction so incredible. Mm. We need to talk for a moment about Edith, the woman whom he ultimately marries. Uh, you, you talk about uh, her and about their courtship, and I think uh, all we really have time to talk about, because I think it's uh, an especially intriguing part of the story, is why there was this drastic interruption in their courtship, which almost resulted in her marrying somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we get a hint of this when uh, Aragorn wants to marry Arwen, and Elrond says, well, you, you can't marry her until we've figured this out. Are you going to be the return of the king guy in the third book or what? After, after, after you're king and have the scepter, then we can talk about marrying. But until then, you know, all bets are off. Well, Tolkien had a similar situation in his life. He'd met this other orphan girl, Edith Bratt, when they're living in the same boarding house, and, you know, she's a little older than he is. And I don't know, now that sounds awfully tame to, to have a 17-year-old hanging out with a 20-year-old or something like that. But then, you know, oh my, it was scandalous. And, you know, things were so prim and proper back then, they had to go behind the back of the woman who owned the boarding house and behind Father Francis's back. And so they met secretly. And, of course, when this got... When their guardians found out, they were horrified. Horrified, not so much that they were meeting, but that they'd been meeting and they didn't know about it. It seemed highly improper. So they were forbidden to do so, and guess what? They'd met again. And at that point, Father Francis said, look, here's the deal. I can't really trust you. And, you know, today they might have gone to a counselor and worked out something a little bit less drastic. But Father Francis said, I forbid you to see her until you're no longer uh, a youth, no longer completely under my guardianship, age 21. So Tolkien says, okay, they, he says goodbye to Edith. He begins to study more seriously to get into Oxford, which he does. And at midnight on his 21st birthday, when the clock strikes midnight, he's free, he's kept his vow, he writes her. <laughs> Turns out she's married to the, or engaged to the farmer then. Well, she, he gets, uh, the farmer gets his ring back within a week, and, and, and they, they, get, they get engaged and um, stay married the rest of their lives. But it, it's quite an interesting story then. It truly you is. I almost say it's the marriage that almost wasn't. Like right. The books almost weren't. Absolutely. Yeah. You also tell us that their marriage occurred uh, practically on the eve of Tolkien uh, enlisting in the army because World War I has begun. And. Uh, and in that terrible conflict, uh, it was already, even fairly early in that conflict, it was already f- quite evident that this was going to be an especially bloody war. And uh, you tell us that uh, Tolkien saw plenty of terrible things uh, in the time that he was a soldier in the First World War, and there's no question that this also had to have left a, a very lasting uh, imprint upon his soul. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're disturbed and rightly so, by the, rightly so by the numbers that come out of what the Mideast, and we hear about dozens or a hundred people being killed. Well, World War I, those numbers were staggering. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we can even appreciate the idea of, of thousands and thousands of people being killed in a single day. It was just overwhelming. So when, when Tolkien marries Edith um, and, and goes off to, to fight in World War I, she says goodbye to him at the train station, and it's, it's very true. There, it's very likely they'll never see each other again. And people who know about World War I know that entire villages lost all the men in them, uh, or most of the men. Um, so he goes off to World War I. He, he fights at the Battle of the Somme, and, you know, it's as bloody as they say, and it goes on for the longest time. And uh, he's saved because he gets 
trench fever um, and, and comes back home to recuperate. And back then, there's really no antibiotics for it. You just come back in the hospital and try and stay warm and dry and have some decent food. And, and Edith goes to see him, and he gradually gets nursed back to pretty good health. But, but it's on again, off again. And, you know, it definitely saved his life. The rest of his battalion is all lost over the coming weeks and, and months there. And so we get to writing the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings comes out after World War II in 1954, and everybody wants to say, ah, the ring, that must be the atomic bomb, because, you know, at this point, they've just finished World War II, and Baradur, well, that must be Berlin. You know, they're all trying to find these allegories. And, you know, he hated allegory. He says, no, 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 no. And he said, besides, he said, any any of the battle imagery I got, I, I got from the battle I was in, um, and I started this way before World War II broke out. So, yeah, when we see that famous scene of, of Frodo and Sam being led by Gollum over the, the dead marshes there on their way to Mordor um, with, the, with the corpses all around and, and not a green thing in sight, of course, this is, this is Tolkien uh, drawing on his memories of no man's land um, at the Battle of the Sun. Um, there are great battles in the Lord of the Rings, and you know they're pretty serious, and 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 they're not fun, and he doesn't really glor- he never glorifies fighting, and uh, you know this is something he learned in World War One and kept with him. Mm. Well, he is fortunate indeed to survive that. I think at one point in your book you said uh, it was his brush with death in terms of ill health, this yeah. this terrible illness that probably saved his life. And uh, you quote Tolkien himself saying that by the year 1918, all but one of his closest friends had all died or or been killed. So this was a young man who tasted more loss than most of us can begin to conceive. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, his beloved friends from the TCBS, these high school friends, and I think this was pretty typical in World War One. All went off to fight, every single one of them. And, you know, a, a, a short time later, is he and one other friend are the only ones left alive. And so part of this is he feels, he, he gets this famous letter from one of them. He says, you, you know, I might, be, I might die tonight. If I do, you've got to carry on the great, this is kind of glorified, but nevertheless it turned out to be true. You have to carry on the great, tradition of the TCBS guys, and you have to write what, what I could never write if, if I'm scuppered tonight, and in fact he was. So part of this push that Tolkien feels, you know, that, that maybe I'm supposed to say something, maybe I'm supposed to, you know, maybe I'm supposed to bring this sort of light of literature to the world and hope and all that sort of stuff through, through literature, is, is born there with all these people dying, all his great friends dying in World War I. Well, of course, what what ultimately ensues is a career in academia, which leads to this career as one of the century's most beloved, if not the most beloved of all authors. And uh, your biography, of course, takes us uh, right through to the end of this extraordinary story. But we'll have to leave it to our listeners to uh, take your wonderful book in hand to explore some of the details we haven't explored yet, and uh, and to, of course, explore the end of this extraordinary life, this extraordinary story. The book is Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author of the Century. Uh, the book is published by Abington Press and the author, Devin Brown. Professor Brown, I congratulate you on a wonderfully crafted biography. I loved every page, and I'm so glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.